please uh, look with me at Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here to worship with you this morning. I um, love the spring that we're having. It's unusual to have uh, days that don't just move right to 98 degrees and full humidity, but we actually have some coolness and breeze, and it's beautiful outside. Hey, let's take a moment to just pray before we spend some time in the Word together. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, that sounded like Dada, and that's how you would have us address you, Abba Father, because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to you now and we ask for your presence through the fellowship of your spirit. We need your help as we read your word. We need your help even to pray, and yet we have your help because you're gracious to be present with us and give us yourself. We need you so much, so we ask that you would reveal more of your glory, your greatness, and your love to us as we worship you now through the word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So friends, we've been, <clears throat> we've been looking at a series and finishing up our year. The, the home meetings at Liberty Fairmount wrap up for the summer because people go to the four corners of the summer and it's vacation and uh, so we take some time off. But one of the things we've been doing is going through the same passage of scripture that we go through on Sunday through our home meetings so that we can work the word into our lives. If you ever um, make bread, you've got to use uh, yeast 
and sometimes a little sugar to activate the yeast, but you work that into the dough and uh, you, you continue to knead. And what happens is the flour, which is dry and sort of able to be sifted, working with the yeast and some water becomes, uh, becomes a different kind of substance. In the same way, when we are under the pressure of life, and we are being needed, the thing that we need worked into us is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've been looking at what does the gospel mean to our trials and our tribulation? What does it mean to when we suffer? And so we've looked at a few things uh, in the past several weeks. We've looked, the first time that we uh, began this subject, we looked at the fact that Jesus is our only asset. Everything else we would consider important to our lives is, uh, is like a liability in comparison to him. We also um, looked at the upward call of God to the new heavens and a new earth, and that, that upward call, the hope that we have, that he will one day return and make all things new and wipe the tears away that you're having now, that you struggle with now and are shedding now. He'll wipe those away, and uh, he'll make you like him. We'll live in peace with him, in full shalom with him, he and all people from all nations who he calls his own. We also talked about, um, in the second series, we talked about how our trials and troubles are like a lathe that God uses to transform us, to draw us closer to relationship uh, with him. And we also looked at the idea that our responses themselves to the difficulties in lives are often driven by our idolatries, and those responses themselves need transformation by gospel relationship with God. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the the fact that we need the truth. We need the truth of who God is personally. We need it not abstractly, not as just a, a dry piece of information that we relate to as other pieces of information, but we need to know it personally. And so what we're going to look at, you know, it's interesting... One of the things we said in the fall, the leaders of the church said in the fall, is that one of the ways we want to grow in Liberty Fairmount is in prayer. And one of the very first things, one of the ways that you can tell that your focus is off of the gospel, off of Jesus, is that in your prayer life, you stop adoration. Your adoration of who God is and what he does and what he's doing just stops. And so, ironically enough and mercifully enough, one of the things we need most when we're under trials and we're under troubles is adoration. And we need to develop that. And so David gives us a great example of what adoration looks like here. And we're going to walk through it together. And hopefully by the end you have some tracks to run on for what does adoration look like? What does my prayer life look like when I adore God? How can I be transformed by the adoration that I have for God? Um, Adoration adoring God through the truth of who he is helps us to see the state of our own hearts more clearly. It also helps us to see him and who he is more clearly. As we tend to look at at God, we said earlier in the series, through our circumstances rather than how he reveals himself to us. And we choose to look at him and believe about him, things that we gather from our circumstances and the pain that we're in, rather than what he tells us about himself and how he stands in for us at the cross. Usually, adoration is the first thing to go, but it's always the first thing that we need. And so let's talk about it, okay? We're going to look at just two, two things. We're going to look at meditating personally on God's attributes, David gives us that here, and he gives us a great window into what that looks like. Meditating personally, personally, not just cognitively, not just with understanding, but engaging God as a person 
in understanding his attributes. It's a different thing. It's the difference between knowing about somebody and knowing them. And so meditating on personally upon God's attributes is one thing we'll look at. We'll also look at being awakened by the power of Jesus' resurrection life. Being awakened transforms, Jesus transforms us to the image of God in the grace he's shown and the hope he engenders. So let's think about it for a minute, okay? First of all, one of the things that we see in the text in verses 1 through 6, these are in different groupings. This Hebrew poetry often happens in groupings. And so we're going to look at it in groupings. And verses 1 through 6 deals with the knowledge of God. The attribute David looks at is the knowledge of God, how he knows things. It's about God's knowledge, but more importantly, to meditate upon God's knowledge is meditate personally upon God's knowledge. Why? Because verse 6 tells us, David tells us, that his knowledge is more wonderful than ours. It's more complete than ours. It's more than we can comprehend, and yet he is involved in our lives patiently and lovingly. You know, when, I was, uh, when Ezra was one month old, we took him to a checkup, and he had about a week or two to live. He had about a week or two to live. And he was losing blood at a rapid rate. And he was very pale. And we took him into the emergency room. And they tried to find a vein that they could give him blood in. And they tried for two hours. And they kept stabbing him. And this wouldn't work. And this wouldn't work. And his legs wouldn't work. And his feet wouldn't work. And his hands wouldn't work. You know, about the first 15 minutes of that, Anne-Marie had to leave the room. But I stayed there with him, and I helped keep him calm, and I helped hold him there. And everything on his face and everything in his cries told me that this was not the place. This is not what I need, Dad. This is not what I need. And yet I had to hold him there, and I was a part of it for the next two hours. And finally they found, you know, babies have the soft spot on the top of their head. And they were able to put the needle in there and give him blood that way. And so we have pictures of him with needles and IVs taped to the top of his head as a little one. Similarly, my, my daughter was not quite a year old, and she was running along the, the pavement, and maybe she was a little over a year. She had her first set of teeth, so I guess she was a little over a year. And um, she was running along the pavement, and she, her mom told her not to, and she didn't listen. And she was running along the pavement, and boom, she tripped, and she, she deadened the, the complete it's shattered and deadened, but stuck in her mouth, her, her front uh, top tooth. And so we had to take her to the dentist. It was an oral surgeon. And literally, I watched. Have you ever, you know, you've been in the dentist's chair, but have you ever actually been over the ch- person with the dentist looking into the mouth as they do the work that they do? You haven't, probably haven't conceptualized that, have you? So it was interesting. I, I, it was the same thing with Honor. I had to sit there and just hold her chest and hold her hand and tell her it was going to be okay. And what, that was all while the dentist had to put the needle into her mouth, and I watched her gum pop out. It bubbles up and takes all that liquid in there. Right? And so then, then it's deadened, so she can't feel the next part. And he grabs, a piece, he grabs a pair of pliers, much like you would work on a piece of machinery, Rith, and he grabs onto that tooth, and he just, boom, he yanked it right out. And I had to be there during her tears to say this is actually what you need. Though her cries and though her, her, um, her ability to understand what was going on said anything but that. But my knowledge was more wonderful than hers. In the same way, our God's knowledge is more wonderful than our knowledge. 
he doesn't just know all things. You know, the, the word that, that the theologians use for this passage is one through six here is God's omniscience. He knows all things and he knows them all fully and he knows them all comprehensively. But the thing you've got to realize is that God knows you completely. God knows you completely, inside and out. Scripture says his understanding is infinite. He knows all things, but God knows you. He knows your inner thoughts. He knows your outer ways. These verses here, 1 through 6, are full of knowing, full of verbs that talk about knowing, right? Verse 1, you've searched me and know me, right? Verse 2 talks about the inner thoughts. As you worship, as you enjoy a meal, and you're having thoughts. As you're in relationship or having relations with the one to whom you're married, you're having thoughts. As you're yelling at somebody in anger, you're having thoughts. The Lord knows you fully in all of those moments. He has full knowledge of you and who you are. And it's not just your inner thoughts. Verse 3, your ways. It's your everyday lifestyle. All of those things, every place you find yourself, whether it's work or at home, it's not just when you sing praises here. It's every aspect of who you are. He knows. He knows you. He knows where you're at. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. He knows you inside and out. He knows your unexpressed thoughts. Verse 4. Do you ever know someone well enough to finish one another's sentences? I know exactly what you're going to say, and you say it. It feels good to know somebody like that. God says that he knows you just like that, only infinitely greater than you've experienced. He knows your thoughts before they're expressed. Verse 5, all of your personal life falls wholly within divine limits. He's behind you, before you, upon you. That's why Jesus can say, no one can snatch them out of my hand. He surrounds you. He knows you. He knows you. But it's not just God knows you completely. He is also with you everywhere. He's with you in every place. When we, when we talk theology, when we study theology, and this is important. Listen, I'm not knocking theology. I'm talking about theology and, theology plus, right? It's knowledge and experience and life together. We talk about this 7 through 12, God with you in every place is God's omnipresence. Now, what does that mean, omnipresence? It means God is Lord of all spatial reality. He's the Lord of all spatial reality. But there's there's something important here. The Bible says that the Lord is distinct from spatial reality, but he's also in it. Now, this is important because other, other religions of the world, deism, for example, will say that God is transcendent, He's not a part of anything that we do here. He's, he's like the removed watchmaker, right? Or you could look at pantheism and monism saying, no, God's in things. He's present. He's a force or whatever. That's not what the Bible teaches either. What the Bible teaches is unique. Christianity is unique in this. It says God is both transcendent and imminent at the same time. He's both distinct from his creation and he moves into it and becomes a part of it with us. And he's here. So he's with us. Uh, 
God is Lord over all of spatial reality. He's distinct from it, but also in it, in all of it. Now, here's the thing. It means, what does it mean? It means we cannot be lost from God. When you're in trials and when you're in troubles, you feel like you're lost from God. You feel like there's a glass ceiling. You feel like you can't hear from him. But this says, David says here in verse 7, we cannot be lost from God. David was often fleeing as his enemies pursued him. Right? Some of you have heard those stories. David had some nasty enemies who would pursue him, and he'd have to hide out in caves, and he'd have to do all kinds of running in his life. He'd have to flee. But in verse 7, he says that there was no place that he could flee to where God wouldn't be able to have personal relationship with him, where God wouldn't be there. God is everywhere. He's in the everlasting dimensions, verse 8. It talks about heaven and death. We'll get to that. God is both there. He talks about in verse 9 and 10, spatial dimensions, the wings of the morning into the east, beyond the bounds of the sea, right? That's what, it's poetry, and so he's evoking those kinds of image. Verses 11 through 12, he's in the temporal dimensions. Light turns to night, right? Day turns to night. Light turns to darkness. Passage of time. He's everywhere. So God knows you completely, and God is with you in every place. But he's also your creator. Verses 13 through 18 deals with God's creatorship. He's the creator. He's the creator. And he has, as your creator, he has rights to every part of your life. Every part of your life. Another way to say that is that he takes responsibility for every aspect of who you are, every part of your life. One of, uh, one of the theologians that I was reading on this as I was preparing and praying through the text put it this way. He said, God brings everything into being out of nothing. We see this in Genesis 1. But this same language is used of redemption. God not only creates things out of nothing, he creates us and brings us life when we're dead. He says, he writes, salvation is God's new creation. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Or in Ephesians 2, he writes, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Just as God created the world out of nothing and brought light out of darkness, so he brought his people from sin to righteousness, from hopelessness to assurance of his love. Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, Genesis 1, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So as with creation, so in redemption, everything is of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Whether he knits you together in the womb or he brings you new life in the gospel, he is the author and perfecter of your faith. He is your creator. He is responsible for you. And that means he has rights to every part of who you are, every aspect of your life, every corner, every nook and cranny, who you are behind closed doors, as well as who you are in public, who you, hear, who you are here on Sunday, as well as who you are with your friends and just a couple gathered together. He has rights to you there. 
So he not only knows you completely, he's with you in every place. He created you, whether physically or spiritually, and has a right to every part of your life. But also, God's will, God's will is that you would be like him. God's will is that you would be like him. And the last section of verses that we see in the psalm are, are 19 and 24, 19 through 24. And there we find God's holiness, God's set-apartness, his distinctness, right? God is the standard of our contact, conduct. And we should reflect God's own nature. We should image it. Right? We were made in the image of God, so we should image God's own nature. And since he has made us in his image, Genesis 1, we should behave in a way that images him. He says in Leviticus 19, you should be holy, talking to the people of God, because I am holy. And First Peter goes on, in First Peter, Peter goes on to say this, but he who has called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, and he quotes Leviticus 19. Be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. It means he has purpose for you. It means he's not going to leave you as you are. A lot of you, and especially in trial and trouble, can feel when you look at the trial and trouble, especially if it's caused by somebody else, especially if you're a victim of the trial and trouble you're under. You can look like, you can feel like, I'm never going to change. I'm never going to get out of this. I'm never going to. The Lord has not come to leave you here. He's come to make you like him. He's come to make you holy because he is holy. Okay. Adoring God. There's a lot there. There's a wonderful uh, example of David adoring God. But you can't do it. You'll never do that kind of adoration by trying really hard. You'll never do that kind of adoration. You'll never well up enough in your heart to do it, to sustain it, to be changed by it, to be transformed by it. You'll never... Do it by trying hard. Why? Because we believe, instead of one through six, that God knows us deeply, we believe that God does not know us. We struggle with the fact that God knows us. We believe that he doesn't know us. We pass over the fact that omniscience means God knows us personally, not just all things abstractly. His omniscience is not just an abstraction. It's not just a theological category that we use to cleverly think about who God is and what he's done. He knows us personally. He's in relationship with us personally. We pass over the fact that omniscience means that. We depersonalize the fact that God knows us completely and instead study God's attribute of omniscience in abstraction from relationship with him. You can't do that. It doesn't work. I was reading a story that a, a man told of being on a subway, and it was a Sunday, and he got on the subway, and it was quiet, and some people had coffee or tea, and other people had newspapers, and they were reading, reading to themselves quietly as they were enjoying the train ride. And um, he sat down, and he said, this is really pleasant. He thought that to himself. And the, the train stops and the doors open and a cacophony of kids come onto the, onto the train. Just a couple of them, but they were a cacophony. They were just such loud dissonance. And they were grabbing people's papers and they were causing a ruckus. And their dad was with him and he came in and he sat down on the train and he just closed his eyes. And he didn't do anything about it. And so the man said, you know, my inward reaction was first one of anger. 
I was like, well, come on, guy. And so finally, he said, with great patience, I actually turned to the guy who sat right next to him. He said, I, I turned to the guy and I said, do you think you should maybe control your kids a little bit more? And he opened, the man opened his eyes and he said, oh, I guess I should. I don't know what to think. I'm sure they don't know what to think. We just left the hospital an hour ago where their mother died, and I, I don't know how to move forward right now. The man couldn't know him in abstraction from relationship with him. And when you're out of relationship with somebody, you can't know them. And when you're out of relationship with the living God, you can't know him. But we believe that God does not know us. And so we fail there. We also believe that God is not with us. In verses 7 through 12, God, David looks and adores God and says, you're always with me, you're with me everywhere. And yet we pass over the fact that omnipresent means God is with us in every place. We live as though every second we breathe, everything we do, every place that we go, everything that we give ourselves to is not before the face of God. As though God is not right there with us. Have you ever been in a room with somebody who treated you like you weren't there? I was talking, reflecting on a story with Anne Marie. I told you about uh, a story that I had where I sat down and caught somebody up about myself. It took about 20 minutes to do, and then the next five hours were spent on that person just talking about themselves. Uh, Anne Marie had a similar experience where she and another friend walked into the room her person was there, and the person knew her well and had relationship with her, but went right by her, actually ignored her. It was a little strange, and just said hello to the friend and started engaging the friend and then walked away. We act like God is not with us in the same way. We also act like God has no rights to us. In 13 through 18, we talked about how he's the creator and how he has rights to every part of our lives. But we pass over this fact that his distinction as creator of our lives, both physical and spiritual, gives him that right, gives him the responsibility. He takes ownership. You ever struggle in your life with people taking ownership or not taking ownership when they should? God takes ownership of you, every facet of you, every aspect of your spirituality. He takes ownership of you, and yet we live as though we're autonomous, like we are fulfilled in and of ourselves, like we're independent of the need of him or the need to answer to him. Look, if you're in danger of dying from a heart condition, one of the things you're going to do is that you're going to entrust a doctor and give the doctor a right to every part of your life, what you eat, how you sleep, how often you exercise, what kind of exercise you do, when you have to see them again, when you have to report in. And if you don't give the doctor those rights, you're foolish and you're going to die. And it's the same way here. God is your creator. He knows you. He's with you. He made you. To act as though he doesn't have rights over you is just foolishness. And then finally we act like God is not making us like him. We pass over the fact that God's holiness means that we must be holy too. Look, we live clinging to our rights 
in our culture today. We live clinging to our rights over the rights of anyone else, including God. And we cling to the rights of the things we want most as though that's just the way we are, forgetting that God didn't come to leave us as we are, but to make us like him. What does holiness look like? One of the, um, there was a man that worked in a financial industry and his team funded other companies' projects. And uh, one of, and they stood to make, when the company's project was done, they would stand to make each millions of dollars, the, the members of this team. And one of the companies came in, uh, had really bad practices, really questionable ways that they handled things. And that company came in, and he thought about it, and he said, you know, holy means, being a Christian and being holy and distinct means that I am distinct. And I don't believe that I can take this work. And yet, I know that I'm commanded to honor my employer. So what do I do? And so he, he tried with wisdom to say, all right, I'll do the work for the team, but I'm going to stand against it publicly and openly, even to my boss, and I'm also not going to take a single cent from this work that I do. He tried to figure out in his own field how to be distinct as a Christian, how to be holy. And it changed him. And it changed the others around him as well. We do not live like that. Most often, we don't live like God is making us like him, like he's transforming us, like he's changing us to to give witness to others that we're being made like the one who saves. Thankfully, friends, come back with me. If you, if you felt the weight of that last section, I wanted you to. Why? Because there's one who took it. There's one who has adored God perfectly in prayer. And he's done it on your behalf. He's done it perfectly. He's done it wholly. He's done it truly. He truly adored God. But instead of getting help in his troubles and trials, he died under judgment from God. He received his wrath. He received his condemnation so that you wouldn't have to. The judgment and the wrath was for you. For you believing that God does not know you. For you believing that he's not with you. For you believing that he's not, doesn't have any rights to you. For you believing he has no purpose for you. He stood in and took the judgment for those things in all of the ways that you express them daily. And he did it for you. Where do we find that in our text? It's so interesting how the Bible's connected. You know, one of the things, uh, Bob LaRocca, we mentioned his the theology on tap for guys, uh, it's, it's discipleship of the mind from the Christian faith, and that's what we're going to be doing together, and it's, it's going to be a great venue. But one of the things he and I both took from our education was the connectedness of all of Scripture, the redemptive story and how it unfolds. Will you watch for a minute of how it unfolds here and how much the gospel is present right here, even in this psalm? Check out verse 7, right? Check out verse 7. Where David says, where? Where shall I go? Where? It implies the Lord is present and active in every place, right? And we said in verse 8 that there's the everlasting dimension above and below. God is present in heaven 
or in Sheol. What does Sheol mean? It means death. God is present in death? He's with you? What does that mean? Derek Kidner, one of the famous commentators of the Psalms, you know, if you can, and you, you can pray through the Psalms regularly as a habit, there are, are ways to do that, and there are little things online you can find to do that, but Kidner's commentary is a great help. He's a, one of the famous commentators. He writes this. He says, look, first, we see that the gospel is given the second line of verse 8. Sorry. Make sure that that's right. Yes. If I ascend, verse 8 is, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The gospel is given the second line of verse 8, a holy new flavor. First in that Christ descended into Sheol, to death, on our behalf, and could not be held by it. Luke writes this in Acts 2. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he says, he goes on to say, He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, also meaning death, or death's domain, nor did his flesh see corruption. So that's the first thing. God is with us in death. The gospel shows us that. Jesus died. It's one of the things we're going to confess in a few moments when we come to the Lord's table. I believe he's died and he was buried. That's the God of the universe. He's with you. In your death. Secondly, Kidner writes that for us, Sheol or death or the reign of death has become a paradise. Think about that for a second. David's exclamation, You're there! You are there! is brought out clearly and eagerly with Paul's phrase, with Christ, which is far better. What's he referring to? What's Kidner referring to? He's referring to Philippians, which we've already studied. Philippians 1 22 through 24. Paul's questioning as he writes, he says, look, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I can labor fruitfully, right? Yet which I, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is better. Christ has overturned death. He's turned it into a paradise. Paul yearns for it. Paul yearns for it. But he also goes on to say, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he knows that God has a purpose for him remaining. And God is the author of that. He's with us even in death. So God is himself present with us in death. But verses 13 through 18 also talks something about God's presence as creator. And we've already alluded to this, but listen to what happens here. From conception to resurrection, God is present as creator. So he is in the awesomeness of human creation. David talks about how even before the conception, he knew him and that he, can see, he was wiring him together, knitting him together in his mother's womb. And he talks poetically about it. He talks about the mother's womb like it's the depths of the earth, right? It's a poetic phrase to bring out some, some ideas there. But he's also present in the awesomeness of new life that is eternal. Do you know verse 18? Look at verse 18. He says, I awake. Do you think it's a stretch that he means resurrection? Do you think he's a stretch? Let's take a look. Let's take a look. We're going to cross-reference Psalm 17, 15, where the same language is used. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Or consider further Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light, 
and the earth will give birth to the dead. Or Daniel 12, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And that brings us to Psalm 139, verse 18. I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. So you're there in my natural born life, you're there with me. You're there in my supernaturally born life when you give me life out of death through faith in the gospel and you're with me in the resurrection from the dead. Jesus, remember, is the one who has the power, look at the language, connectivity of the whole redemptive story to awaken from the dead. Remember Luke 8? Remember Jairus' daughter? Think about this. I'll read it for you. This is Luke 8, chapter 40, or verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now some other things happened there. took Jesus' attention. And it says, while he was still speaking, when those other things were happening to the people that they were happening to, Someone came from the ruler's house and came and said, Your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no others to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand... He called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her eat. And her parents were amazed. Her parents were amazed. Jesus is the one that has the power to awaken you from death, to raise you up, because Jesus himself awoke from the grave so that you will awaken too. Friends, it's not until you see that through Jesus that you can awake to God through the truth of who he is and be bolstered by it, that you'll be free. Our failure, our failure to adore God in prayer, to adore God under trials and tribulations, our failure to do all the things that we felt the weight of just a few moments ago, our failure is due to our functional rejection of what Jesus did. You'll never be able to adore God through the truth of who he is until you first believe in, until you first rest in, until you first rejoice in. The one who awakens the dead as though they're merely sleeping and the one who broke the power of death himself by rising again from the dead. The firstborn among many brothers, we're told, and sisters. He is your elder brother. He is the newness of life that awaits you that's actually present in your life now in parts, not fully, but presently through his Holy Spirit fellowshipping with you, making you new day by day, renewing the inward you. Your joy and confidence under trials won't be sufficient unless you know yourself as the one whom Jesus awakens, both now through faith in him and on the last day when he raises you as a member of his kingdom beyond time. Beyond time. It's eternal. It's beyond it. Remembering him frees our hearts so that we can adore God like this, like David does. Like David does. So, a few notes in closing on how to take this into your week. How do we do this? What does it look like? How do you adore God? 
have you pray like this? Here are some of the questions that are in the leader's guide of the home meeting study. Each week, take time. If you're in a home meeting, just ask your leader to forward them to you, and you can use them to um, root down into these truths about who God is. Root down into the fact that he knows you completely, that he, um, he's with you in every place. He's uh, created you personally, physically and spiritually. He has purpose for you. He's making you like him. And it's all because Jesus stood in for you, that you can now be related to God in that way and adore him in that way. So what does that look like in prayer? Well, there's an old tool, friends, and some of you have heard of it and some of you haven't. It's called ACTS. It's the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. Just like the book that we read that's connected with Luke and ACTS, right? ACTS. And it's a, it's a helpful little acronym. It means adoration. It stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Now, here's the problem. Our responses to our troubles and trials need... Um, transformed by our relationship with God. We can't trust our responses in and of themselves. Our idols are there. And so one of the things we need to tack on to that Acts part is a T. What's the truth? Well, we just learned about it. All right, so now, if that's the truth, if this is the truth of who God is and what he's doing and what he's done, then now how do I adore him based on that truth? You see? So here's the question. How does this truth that we've been studying show me something about God to praise? Praise! Adoration. Now, you're going to put this into your own words. Here are mine, but maybe they'll be helpful to you. Here's an example. God, you know me. I'm in trouble and you know me. And you haven't abandoned me. And you give me life at every point, both in time and both outside of time. And you're making me like you. And you are so personally involved with every facet of my life. You care, and you're present, and you have a purpose for me. You are steadfast in your character. You are loving and pursuing in your character. You are wonderful, as David prays, so wonderful. Wonderful beyond my capability of understanding it. And then you take that adoration, you move on to confession. Okay, Well, how does this truth then show me something I need to confess to God? How does it show me a sin to confess? Here's some guidelines. Again, put it into your own words and and spend time with God. This is not meant to be wooden. It's meant to, to help foster you stepping into relationship with the living God. You could say, you could confess to him, I feel like I don't know myself sometimes. And when all I need to do is seek you, the one who really knows me, I feel like I'm facing the difficulties of life and work without you sometimes. I feel like I have to protect my life as though it is not a gift secured by your work in the gospel and that it can be taken away from me at any time. I feel like I have no good things about me sometimes, but yet you are making me holy as you are holy, great as you are great, righteous as you are righteous. And you let that bring you on to thanksgiving. How can I give thanks for Jesus for being the ultimate solution to this need in me? this inability in me to be able to adore God. You can say, Jesus, it was as though you were unknown by the Father so that I could be known. You were left alone to face sin and death so that I would never be left alone. You were unprotected and your life ended so that I could be given a life that can never be taken. You were condemned as unrighteous, not holy, so that I could be made righteous and holy. You stood in for me. You've called me friend. You've called me brother. You've brought me peace. 
and then you let that go on to supplication, what does that show me about something I need to ask God for? You could pray maybe something like this. Lord, I need to hear about who I am from you. I need your voice shaping those thoughts. I need your voice testifying with my heart that I'm your child. You know me better than myself. You have a purpose for me. I sense your present. I would like to sense your presence more deeply and more regularly. I'd like to, to love life full of resurrection, life, and hope. I'd like to see great and steady progress in my being made like you in this way and in this way and in this way. You can go to him. He's with you. He knows you. He's responsible for you. And he has purpose for you. And he's testified to it in Jesus. We have a great God. Let's give him ourselves now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for knowing us. Oh Lord, thank you for for knowing us, for being with us. Thank you for being responsible and taking ownership of us. And thank you for the fact that you have a purpose for us, that you love us too much to leave us as we are, and that you've promised to complete the work that you've begun. You've promised to make us like you. You give us the resources in your Holy Spirit through the knowledge of you. Lord, your servant Peter says that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness through a knowledge of you, Jesus. Through a knowledge of you. It's not just the knowledge that saves us, but it's the knowledge that grows us and brings us peace. And it's that knowledge. It's that knowledge that we come to you in now. And we give you thanks. And we give you praise. And we give you our lives. And though we do it imperfectly, we know that you, Jesus, have done it perfectly and that we do not stand before you untethered to your record, left to our own devices, but we stand in your righteousness and your grace and your peace and we have the Holy Spirit to testify to that and we say with you, amen.